So here we go again. October 24, 2010, lecture discussion number 20 on the book of Romans. Last week, which was, duh, lecture discussion number 19, we began 2 Samuel 21, which I like to call the third stage of the three-stage Gibeonite saga. So we got to the final stage last week, and as usual, we asked the obvious questions, and I even answered a couple of them, which is against my nature. It's something I rarely do so soon into a chapter, but I actually did. I talked about why, what Saul's motive was. And, of course, Mark wasn't here, but Mark brought up Saul's motive in his little elder dissertation there. But I made that exception. I provided answers, like I said, for why did Saul seek to exterminate the Gibeonites and why were the descendants of Saul executed for Saul's actions? At least that's the way it seems to those who read it shallowly. Shallow? Shallowly? Is that a word? Should be a word if it's not. But in any event, if you take a shallow reading or a cursory reading, which is a Deuteronomy 24:16 violation, so you know that can't be true. God cannot violate his word. It's inviolable. He will not. He cannot do it. People ask me all the time, is there things that God cannot do? He cannot sin. Cannot. So if you have God sinning, whether that's Christ... Especially if that's Christ. If you ever have a position where Christ has to sin, and sin, by the way, we'll define really quickly. Fear is sin. Foolish anger, sin. Not knowing something for God is sin. Lack of omniscience. But in any event, God would not violate his own words, so it cannot be true that the descendants of Saul were executed for Saul's actions. That cannot be true. And the clues for both of those questions, by the way, why did Saul seek to eliminate the, exterminate the Gibeonites and why were the descendants of Saul executed for Saul's actions? The clues for both questions are uh, in the verse, in Saul's zeal for the children of Israel. Why does Saul have zeal for the children of Israel? Am I not turned on? Thank you, sir. There, that fixed it. So there, that uh, may change the recording capability. I hope, uh, I hope that we got the first part. And if we didn't, then that's God protecting me, as usual. But Saul had zeal for the children of Israel. What is that? You have to define that. Why doesn't he have zeal for God is the first obvious thing you would ask there. What is it about the children of Israel that he has zeal for? What does the children of Israel offer after? And then the other one is Saul's bloodthirsty house. His entire family, by God, is called bloodthirsty. So that gives you understanding into how it is not a uh, Deuteronomy 24.16 violation. Now, realize that we're not doing an exhaustive analysis of 2 Samuel 21. We're not. We're pretty much just covering the bases, the basics, if you will, because this is, after all, a Roman study. Welcome to Romans, right? And I've got to keep reminding everybody that this is a Roman study because it's not easily noticeable or discernible. Anyway, my point is we just haven't got the time to do 2 Samuel 21 um, with its due justice. And as was, uh, as was the case with Joshua 9 and 10 and Genesis 34 before them, we're speeding through this in order to get back to Romans so that you will understand circumcision. Even though I think most of you now, when I say circumcision to you, you should say what back to me? Boy, a bunch of answers, and that's really good. 
It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant of grace and blessing and promise. It has something to do with grace. It has something to do with blessing and promise. It has something to do with the the sin nature of man through Adam. It has something to do with the circumcision of the heart. So that means it is not about something else. If it's about grace, it's not about what? Not about law. Very good. Anyway, this is about circumcision, Romans chapter 2. And then so we can move on to Romans chapter 3. And we're almost there. I may be done today. I wrote 13, 14 pages. I'm going to pound my way through it just so we can move back to Romans next week so everyone can come back. I'm kidding about that, aren't I? Again, law and circumcision. Notice how I say that. Because I said that badly. There's no such thing as law and circumcision. There is law or circumcision. Or there is law or grace. There is no law and grace. And that's a very important thing. People will try to add law to grace and you cannot. It is not, let me repeat, not law and grace, but law or grace. It's a choice. You see, you either choose law, you either choose works, you either choose human-based salvation, or you choose grace, mercy, and God-based salvation. Now, I said another thing that isn't true, isn't it? I said that there was something called what? Human-based salvation. There is no such thing as human-based, law-based, works-based salvation. That doesn't go together. That's a... That's an oxymoron, right? There's only human-based, law-based, works-based death, condemnation to hell, blindness, Matthew 23. As an aside, I tell, I say this all the way, all the time. By the way, it's this is an as an aside. By the way, if you memorize scripture, and some of you do, and that's wonderful. I am not a big scripture memorizer. I learn it just because I say it a lot. Not because I sit down and consciously try to memorize it, but it is a valuable thing to do. Matthew 23, if you're one of those, is a good place to start. Go there and read it after you read John 8:24. What's John 8:24? You must believe I am or you will perish in your sins. That's Christ saying you must believe that I am the I am or you will perish in your sins. You must believe that Jesus Christ is fully, completely the Lord God Almighty, the Creator God in the flesh, or you will perish. Now, once you got that, you go to Matthew 23, where Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, Creator God in the flesh, is damning the Pharisees and their pharisaical doctrine. That's what he's doing there. And I've said this often. Figure out what a Pharisee does and figure out what a Pharisee believes That's Matthew 23. Go figure out what they do and what they believe, and then do none of it and believe none of it. Always, constantly look at yourself and say, am I a Pharisee somehow? Because if you are, you're in a law-based system, and if you are, you're what? In great error and in big humpum wumpum trouble. Find out what a Pharisee is, run the other direction. And thus the what? The obvious question. I do have the big soda again with the ice. I'm doing my very best not to chew on the ice. But I love the ice. It chews really good. That's why you buy the ice and the soda. 
But the obvious question, back to our topic, why do so many people, the vast majority of all human beings, overwhelming majority, I would say 99% of all people, if Christ himself condemns and damns the pharisaical system, the most works-based system ever devised by humanity, and Christ damns it in the most powerful terms ever, why do so many people, so many churches... Why do they seek after and cling to and demand a human-based, pharisaical, law-based, human works, pharisaical effort system of salvation? Why do they do it? What is, makes it so attractive to people? I got a note here to read Matthew 23:15. so let's go do it. I don't know why the note's there. I'll be as surprised as you. But yesterday, I thought it was a good idea. Let's go find out. Here it is. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. So if you have a law-based system, let's just take a few of them on. Let's go ahead and make enemies right now. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a law-based system. The Mormons have a law-based system. If you convert... He says to you, you're twice as much, you make your, your convert twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Now, why would you want that? That's, by the way, when they ring the doorbell, that's the first place I go. Let's go here. Do you have a law-based system? Can you earn your way to heaven? Can you, can you come up with a way to save yourself? If you can, here's your problem. How are your kids doing? That's the next question I ask. Do you convert your children to a law-based system? Did you make them twice as much a son of hell as yourself? That's pretty strong. Who said that? That's God himself saying that. And that by itself should stop you, stop me, stop everyone, but that's not the case. Anyway, this is the underlying issue of 2 Samuel 21, as I said last Sunday. Law or grace. That's the underlying issue. Mark just brought it up, as I said, in his elder dissertation. It, he's right on target. How does he know these things? Law or grace on display, hidden within the fabric of 2 Samuel 21. Uh, it's an actual historical, literal event with actual historical, literal, literal people who did the very things that were there. And hidden inside that is the issue of law or grace. And actually, if you wish, it, what's hidden there is grace. God intervenes to protect, to preserve his divine, his divine truths here. Foremost is his truth of salvation by grace alone through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Or if you will, the just shall live by faith. That's what's going on in 2 Samuel 21. He's protecting that. Why is there a famine, a three-year famine? Because God is protecting the just shall live by faith. God will come when his chosen people, his firstborn, his nation of priests, his nation of Israel, when they careen into lawlessness and hypocrisy, when they're going around making their, their people they're converting twice the son of hell as themselves, he comes because they're the only nation at this time that has the truth. And if they're going into the ditch, he's got to go get them. He's got to pull them out by whatever means possible or necessary and teach them how to stay into grace, based salvation. And so he comes. 
or he sends something to affect them, to move them. And when God comes, holiness and judgment must come with him as much as must love and mercy and justice come. Okay, that is essentially where we left off. Now y'all's caught up. Now for the sake of the visitor, let me look. Okay, sort of got a visitor. And are the absentees, I also put that here, as well as the sleep-deprived, I put that there. What we should do is we should reread the highlights of 2 Samuel 21. Again, now we can't read the whole thing, but you can turn there because you got to kind of have it all the time. This is what's wrong with what I do. This is why so many pastors don't do this because you can't help but lose people. They have to come literally every Sunday. You have to take attendance and figure out who's got what, and then you have to give out tests and flunk people, which we have done, as you know. As we know, no one flunked. Okay, a couple of you did. Raise your hand if you flunked. <laughs> okay, again, this is a very difficult, complex chapter. It's of, of utmost importance that when we read it, that we're always asking why and how. We're asking that a lot, almost every word, every verse for certain at least, because the anatomy of this is hard to figure. What I mean by anatomy is the steps of it. That's why you should always, good Bible students love crime shows. That's, I'm half kidding about that. But you see the anatomy of the crime in the show. You can say, okay, this happened because that happened, because this happened, because that happened. That's what you're doing in the Bible. It's, it's, it's required of you to do that. Figure out what the steps were. How did I get from here to there? For example, how do we get from Amasa killed at Gibeon by Joab? It's, he pretended that he dropped his sword. He picked it up like he was going to shake hands or hug him or kiss him in a, in a Middle Eastern way. And he thrust the thor- sword into Amasa and killed him. It was a brutal act of, of uh, vengeance, by the way. Um, and it was an evil act as well. But uh, how do we get from Amasa killed at Gibeon by Joab to, to Saul? We've got to go back to Saul killing Gibeonites to a three-year famine now. To David, finally, finally David goes, okay, I better ask God why so many people are dying. David's doing fine. He's got his food. The people are dying. David waits. How's that for a leader? Well, let's see. Palace has got plenty of food. Got a lot of dead people, though. I think I'll wait a couple more years, a couple more months. What's the problem? Army's fine. Does this remind you of anything? Okay, North Korea. David finally inquires of the Lord. And that's just the beginning. How do I get from Amasa Killed by Joab in Gibeon, at Gibeon, to Saul killing Gibeonites, to a three-year famine, to David finally asking the Lord why he's got a famine. And that's what? That's verse 1. I've got to figure that anatomy before I can get going. And we've got to ask that, by the way, on every verse. How are these steps related? How do we get from this verse to that verse, from this step to that step, from this event to this event? Okay? That's what we're doing. Here we go. The abridged version now, Second Samuel 21. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Now, what's the first question you ask? Why? How come three years? Why not a one-year famine? Why not a seven-year famine? Why not a 16-month famine? Why not a famine for a couple of days? I got a three-year famine. What's the next question? How many dead people I got? 
What's the threshold before David goes, okay, that's enough dead people. I've seen enough. I'm going to ask. And why did he wait? He seems to have a red phone. You know what I mean by that? Pick the phone up and go, hey, God, I seem to have a famine here. But he doesn't do that. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered. By the way, I'm going to make the case that David is slow to the uptake on all of this. That doesn't speak well of him. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. God answers. It's because Saul and his bloodthirsty house killed my Gibeonites. So you get a famine. What's the next question? Why did we wait so long before God did this? Why didn't he do it while Saul is killing the Gibeonites? Why don't I put the killing of the Gibeonites by Saul and his bloodthirsty family right with the famine? But I don't. I've got this period of time. This is at the end of David's reign. How old is he? He's frail. He's weak here. Saul died back with the Philistine War. I have the whole kingship, if you will, of David in between this. Why didn't he put the famine right with the killing of the Gibeonites? Why does he wait? So the king called the Gibeonites. How many of them are left? They tell you how many of them are left. How many of them are left? Not many. Probably was surprised that he had any left. We'll get to that in a second. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Because that might have been the first time he goes, Hey, i got Gibeonites left. I thought Saul killed all of them. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So Saul tries to, wants to kill them because something about Israel is, is wanting him to kill them. He gets higher ratings, more, uh, he gets a, a higher approval rating. Poles go up if he kills Gibeonites. Now, that makes no sense on the surface. Why do the Jews want to kill the Gibeonites? Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement? What's he really asking here? Stop this famine, baby. What shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Bow-wap! That's a big hit in the forehead. That should make you stop. What's he saying to him? I need to make atonement. I gotta stop the famine. I got lots of dead people here. And you guys have gotta come through with a blessing for me. And the Gibeonite said to him, We will have no silver or gold. We don't want money. You can't buy us. That's very important. From Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us, how many are left? He was, they consumed, they were consumed. As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, The remnant is being hunted down by the tallest, most good-looking, most powerful man, the king of Jerusalem. And he's consuming the remnant and he's trying to eliminate them, exterminate them from the earth. 
Who's that remind you of? See, that's A.W. Pink, right? His position on Saul as an Antichrist figure, as an Antichrist type. Then, they, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gebeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. Who chose Saul as king? God did. Sure did. Why, by the way? Because Israel rejected God as king. Takes you back uh, to 1 Samuel. About 1 Samuel 10. And the king said, I will give. But the king spared Mephizabeth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So, so the king took Armoni and Mephizabeth, the two sons of Rizpah, different Mephizabeth, if you will. Both of them named the same. And Rizpah becomes very important. So we're going to skip ahead now. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, these seven descendants, sons and grandsons of Saul. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and they were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days... In the beginning of the barley harvest, which is in April, the first days of April, they were put to, put to death, hung on the first days of April, if you will. Now, Rizpah, the daughter of Aniah, took sackcloth and spread it on herself for the, on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. That's extraordinary. I want you to think about that a second before I get to it. And David was told what Rizbah, Rizbah the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went out and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, his son from the men's of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bashan, where the Philistines had hung them. So somebody stole Saul and Jonathan's bones, and David said, okay, I've got to have them because why? Why do I got to have these bones? I've got to have them because of Rizpah. Look at what Rizpah's doing. Oh, my, I get it. Ding. i got to go get Jonathan and Saul. And somebody took the bones. i got to find them. So he brought the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. So he puts all the bones together, right? They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zela, and then in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So there you go. Now, when I've done this before, and I've done this before, I see Katrina here. Did I do this when you were in high school? Five years ago? I probably did. You don't remember any of it, do you? Yeah. Did you get an A in the class? Yeah, she did. <laughs> I won't ask you again how long that was, but I was, you know, gosh, I was probably 19 or so when I taught that. Okay, maybe not. Katrina knows exactly how old I was because we have this mathematical relationship. Now, when I've done this before, it occurred to me 
because I had high school kids, the best way to do it was to approach it as if all of these things, the three stages, what I call the three stages, Genesis 34, the, the murder of the circumcised Gibeonites, Joshua 9 and 10, the, the saving of the Gibeonites after they deceived Joshua, and now here, 2 Samuel 21, I made it appear as if it happened to one guy. He all went through it. He, he lived through everything. And I did it for a bunch of reasons. I'll get to it in a second. And I called him Fred. Sometimes I called him Frank. Sometimes I called him Floyd. But mostly Fred. And don't ask me why I did that. But I called him Fred the Gibeonite. And to look it up to see if I still had notes on it. And fortunately I did. So I had Fred the Gibeonite. And yes, I know the Gibeonite saga happened over hundreds of years. But I found it useful to teach the high school kids... As if the journey of the Gibeonites, the three phases, the saga of the Gibeonites, all was witnessed by one guy. He was he made it through all of it. That's what I did. He'd be 800 years old, but I made it look like it was just one guy for them. And it was Fred. And they got to really liking Fred. And I got the idea, by the way, from a Dustin Hoffman movie called Little Big Man, which dates me. That was about a four-hour movie, if you remember, which is about half the length of today's sermon. I'm sort of kidding about that. So imagine, if you will, Fred, as he began. What was Fred like when he started, Fred the Gibeonite? Figure out what he was like and then what he became. He becomes somebody that hangs seven men. He started out being what? See, ask the obvious question now. How did Fred Frank Floyd get to 2 Samuel 21 from his beginning in Genesis 34? It's an amazing transformation. Fred goes from rapist, killer, kidnapper, right? Who agrees to be circumcised, even though he's a pagan. Then he becomes the moldy bread, torn clothes, sour wine deceiver, right? Holding up his, hey, I got an oath. Can't kill me. I got a, can't kill me out of jail free card. And then he becomes this extraordinary theologian of 2 Samuel 21. How did Fred get there? What's the, how did he transform into this? Transition into what he is? Notice I said extraordinary theologian. Because he is. He knows things that no one else in Israel knows in 2 Samuel 21. When I mean Fred, I mean the Gibeonites, right? Notice that everyone, by the way, is out to kill the Gibeonites. That's the underlying theme. The Israelites, Simeon and Levi especially... That's the hearing of Israel, Simeon, the hearing of Israel, Levi, the priesthood of Israel. We start out in Genesis 34 with those two guys slaughtering Gibeonites, and then they plunder them, they steal their women and children. That's Genesis 34, right? Everybody's trying to kill the Gibeonites. Then again, the Israelites surround their city, seeking to exterminate them again and plunder them again. That's Joshua 9. They don't get to because Fred's got his card, right? Can't touch me. God intervenes, and they're protected by the covenant that they have with God. Next, the Canaanite king of Jerusalem, he surrounds them with four other kings, and they want to do what? Massacre them. That's Joshua 10, right? And again, God sends Joshua and rocks and saves them. So everybody tries to kill the Gibeonites. And we might think that the Gibeonites were done with all the slaughter plunder thing, but no... Another king of Jerusalem and his bloodthirsty descendants, his bloodthirsty family, the King Saul of Israel, comes in and attempts to wipe them out completely and comes very, very close. So the one theme of all of this is everyone kills Gibeonites. Or tries to. 
and some succeed. So we start out with a horrible massacre of the Gibeonites, and now we end with a horrible massacre of the Gibeonites. But Fred made it through all of that, if you will. A remnant survives, which is where we pick up the story. Fred Frank Floyd, the Gibeonite, has had a bad day, hadn't he? If you put this all in one day, called the movie 24 Hours in the Life of Fred the Gibeonite, it's been a bad day. He's getting wiped out everywhere he goes. He's under constant threat of being exterminated. And that should make you go, what is it about circumcised Gibeonites that makes people want to kill them? If they hadn't become circumcised, they wouldn't have ever been killed. If they hadn't had a protective oath, they wouldn't be surrounded. If they weren't in Israel, Saul wouldn't try to kill them and exterminate them out. What is it about this? It's happening. All he sought to do, Fred the Gibeonite, was to unite with Israel, become circumcised, an act of obedience, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing, the promise. Fred heard, Fred believed, Fred accepted slavery in order to be in the covenant of Abraham, and Fred watches his people murdered again and again, and he doesn't do something. What doesn't he do? He doesn't run. They stay in Israel. Even though they're being exterminated, they stay. Even though they're being consumed, he stays. What makes him stay? And what else is he doing? Is God coming quickly to save him this time, like Joshua 10? No. Saul's consuming him. And the famine, the retribution, if you will, doesn't come during Saul's life. Doesn't come until the end of David's reign, essentially. So Fred waits He stays and he waits. He's waiting for God. Fred, you see, knows things. The Gibeonites know that God is going to come. They know it. What's the obvious question? How do they know this? And Fred, Frank Floyd knows that God will avenge the Gibeonites. Again, the obvious question. How does he know this? Finally, King David comes and asks the Gibeonites, What can I do to stop the famine? The Gibeonites have seen three years of famine and they know something is going to happen. One, they know the famine is about them. They know the famine is God. They have been waiting and God has come and he has put a famine on Israel and they know why. Nobody else knows why. David doesn't know why. No clue. God tells him it's because Saul and his bloodthirsty family tried to exterminate my Gibeonites. So David says, what can I do to stop the famine? Now, Fred, the Gibeonite, knows how to stop the famine. What's the obvious question? David comes to him and says, essentially, hey, what's it going to cost? How much money you want? We don't want money. We want to hang seven people. They got to be the descendants of Saul, and we got to hang them in Saul's hometown. How do they know that? What's the obvious question about that, by the way? Why would the Gibeonites tell David how to end the famine? Why wouldn't they just go, hey, fellas, you've been killing us generation after generation after generation. Now's the time you all die from famine. 
Have a nice day. You deserve it. Do they deserve it? They absolutely deserve it. Why did the Gibeonites tell them how to end the famine? Let's put that on your side. Let's say your family is being picked off one after another. And by, a, by whatever you want to call it, by pick a group. And that group comes to you and after they have literally almost to the edge killed everybody, consumed your whole family, they say, hey, uh, we're, uh, God has come and we're under this uh, famine judgment thing and we're dying over here. Uh, could you tell us how to end the famine? How much money you want? Who tells them how to end the famine? The Gibeonites do. We, we know how to end the famine. We know what to do. Why would the Gibeonites want the famine to end? What happens if the famine ends? Why would the Gibeonites participate? Why would they divulge what they know? Why would they bless the inheritance of the Lord? Because they have been transformed by God into an extraordinary people. And they're going to do this. Why? Who's going to benefit if the famine is ended? The Gibeonites? Who's going to... Who's going to See, the Gibeonites have become people who know God's thoughts, who think God's thoughts, people who have wisdom, who have understanding, people who know the deep hidden things, people who know the mysteries. Remember, one doctrine that is in the Gibeonites is the doctrine of grace. They know that. So they know something is coming. They know the sign of David is coming. We cannot kill the Jews because if we kill the Jews, what happens? The Jews cannot be wiped out. One is a covenant that says they won't be, but I have a Messiah that depends on this, right? That's God's system. So they know. They're people who know the deep hidden things, people who know the mysteries, and no longer are they a simple Gibeonite. They are a very complex person. The Gibeonites have been remade into a magnificent witness here, a humble, meek, silent, compassionate, long-suffering, wise lover of the nation of Israel who seek to destroy them because they understand and represent grace. Now, some might ask, and they should, how do I get all of that from the events of 2 Samuel 21? That's a very good question, which requires, of course, that we do what? We answer that question with a bunch of questions. And you should know that by now. So, taking it from the top again. A famine for three years. There's no food. There's no crop. Why isn't there food or crops? Because there's no rain. It says so in the text. There's a drought. God has shut off the rain. Reminiscent, by the way, of Revelation 11. Where I have two witnesses, Revelation 11, wearing mourning clothes, which are what? What are mourning clothes? Sackcloth. i got two witnesses wearing sackcloth. What is sackcloth? It is an expression of penitence, humility, and mourning. And those two witnesses also shut off heaven. Revelation 11.6. They shut off heaven. So I got three years of no rain. Again, how many dead Israelites do I got? 
And then David eventually asked God why. And God answers, Saul and his bloodthirsty sons have killed the Gibeonites. David then goes to the Gibeonites to make atonement for the wickedness of the nation of Israel in order to end the famine or the drought-caused famine, in order to get the water turned back on, right? And David asks them essentially this. What's going to get the water turned on? What's going to stop the drought? What's going to cause the rain to come? i got to have rain. And the Gibeonites know the answer. They've been waiting. They know what God wants. Obvious question, how do they know? And they've been waiting. Again, why did they wait? They wait for God to bring the famine, and then they wait for David to come. They know we're going to have a famine. Probably going to take 50 years. Then we're going to have a famine. We're going to have a drought. The king's going to come, and we're going to tell him how to stop it. Why are we going to tell him how to stop it? Because we believe in the nation of Israel. They are God's firstborn, and through them will come the Messiah. And we're very patient people, these Gibeonites. Fred has become a very patient man. And by the way, what makes someone patient? How can I get you to be patient? What can I do? We're in a society, aren't we, especially the young ones. I mean, Bill and I are driving back from our, our beating in Eagle River. And uh, self-inflicted, by the way. And we're driving by and we pass. Uh, we can't get a lady. A lady in front of me won't make the turn. And then finally she turns. And why isn't she turning? Because she's... Do, yeah, on the cell phone, making her thumbs do things that I can't possibly do. And as we follow her around, there's two people in line. They're right there going to make another left turn. So we're going past them. And what are they doing? Both cars, one after another, there's thousands of drunk drivers essentially all over the streets, and they're all under the age of 20, and it's crazy. We, we, the Hummer isn't good enough anymore. We, we literally need tanks. It's absolutely nuts. And why would somebody, I just can't get it. Just call them. Just, okay, you got a cell phone, but you don't want to use that. You want to type little tiny words with your thumb and your forehead. I don't know how you do it, and I don't care. But just call them. But why can't you wait until you're home or you're parked? What is so special about what you've got to say to them that you endanger everybody? But anyway... How do you make somebody patient? There's only one way, one thing that makes people patient, and that's knowledge. If I know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and why it's going to happen, I'll wait. The Gibeonites know what is coming and when it will come and what they're supposed to do when it does come. They're like the Magi of the court of Daniel. They're waiting. They know they have a job. They know what the job is. They know their assignment. They know what God will do. And they know why he's going to do it. Why did God bring, if you will, why did God shut or bring drought? Why did he shut off the rain? What's the purpose? What's the lesson here? In any event, the way, the only acceptable atonement that God will accept, the only way that God will turn the water back on 
is to hang seven from the family of Saul at Saul's hometown. That's got to do that. That's what's going to work. And they've got to be hanged in the first day of the spring harvest. And they've got to remain until the late rains of the spring harvest come. And that's as much as 45 to 60 days. So that's early April to late May. So they've got to hang there for almost 60 days. That's the deal. That's what's going to turn the water back on. But first, David had to go and gather the bones of the seven hanged and the bones of Saul and Jonathan and then bury them. And then God would bring the late rain and heed the prayer of the land. So that's what i got to do. i got to hang seven guys. And then after they've been hanging there for 60 days, i got to go get the bones of Saul and Jonathan. By the way, is Jonathan a saved man? That's an important detail. Is Jonathan a saved man? Yes. But first I gotta find the guys that took his bones, I gotta get his bones, I gotta get the seven, I gotta get the hanged bones, and what do I gotta have to get the hanged bones? I gotta have bones. They've been there 60 days. Miraculously I've got bones. How is it I got bones? I should have bones. You hang somebody out in the woods for 60 days, what happens to them? I don't know, bones. But I got bones. That's good because I need bones because I got to put the bones with the other bones and I got to bury the bones. And now, rains come. That's the procedure. That's the steps. That's the process. And it's clear from the text that David was slow to figure it out. And figure it out. Oh, my goodness. What made him figure it out? I got an old woman. Bless the old women. Rizbah was not slow to figure it out. What's the obvious question? How'd she know? Rizbah goes out there and she fought to save the bones of the hanged seven from the birds and the beasts for 60 days. There's Rizbah. She's in her sackcloth. What kind of beast, by the way? Sackcloth, again, humility, penitence, mourning. This old woman, she's what? Is she alone? Is to say, Rizpah and her friends are out there fighting off animals. It doesn't. Rizpah is out there with what? Fighting off animals and birds. What kind of animals are there? They're coming. I got all kinds of animals coming in that territory, right? How, what kind of birds are coming? How many birds are coming? This lady fights them off day and night for 60 days, if you will. That's the outside edge. Could have been a little less than that. Until the late rains of the early harvest come. She's out there battling. What's she got? Probably got an Uzi, right? Or, you know, maybe at least a semi-automatic something, huh? She's got a stick if she's lucky. She's in sackcloth fighting off birds. You try that sometime. Put a fish on a dock and fight off the seagulls. She's going to fight them off. And she succeeds. Obvious question. She's trying to save those bones. How did she know to do that? i got to go out there and fight for those bones so that David can gather those bones and put those bones with Saul and, David, or Saul and Jonathan's bones and then he can bury those bones and then we can have what? Rain. How she know? 
When did she learn to do it? At what event? That's what I talk about the steps. Is, this, is she a Bible scholar, Rizpa? Somebody teach her? See, I believe the evidence is clear. The only ones who knew what was coming and why, the only ones who knew what the lesson of Israel was to be, the only ones who knew any of this was Fred, the Gibeonites. And it can't be just coincidence that Rizpah did what was precisely necessary. The Gibeonites didn't do it. They didn't go out there and fight off the birds. Rizpah does. The Gibeonites, by the way, are not vengeful. How do I know that? Because they provide the answer to take to save the nation of Israel. They know what to do. They're saving Israel. They know what to do and why, and they do it. And Israel is saved. Rains come. So I want you to imagine the process of all of this. The seven men are delivered to the Gibeonites. Israel goes and gets them. David goes and gets them. Says, you guys are going to go to the Gibeonites. You seven are going to be hanged. You deserve it. We all know you deserve it. Everybody knows you deserve it. And you're going to be sacrificed. You are the sacrifice that God will accept. And when he accepts the sacrifice of your life, then we all get rain and we get food. Sorry about you. So there they are. Delivered to the Gibeonites. Now, what do you think the Gibeonites tell them? What's the process? Just grab them, take them out, and hang them in 15 minutes? Can't be so. How come it can't be so? Because Rizpah fights off the animals. I ask this question. Are the hanged seven, are they told why they're about to be hanged? Absolutely they're told why they're about to be hanged. If not by the Gibeonites, certainly by King David and the Israelites who come and get them. Do they know that there is a famine? They absolutely know there's a famine. Do they know they're the reason for the famine? Absolutely, they now know. God said it. Everybody knows you seven have to be hanged because of what you and your and Saul's bloodthirsty family has done, which is you. Now, is Rizpah there? Does she know why they're being hung? Absolutely she does. How do the seven respond to their impending hanging? It's what I want to know. Are they happy about it? If you hang me, everybody lives because of what I've done. How does Rizpah respond? You see, anything in the scripture where she is saying, God should not have hung my son. Just the opposite. She accepts the hanging. She's out there fighting for the bones. Are they all, by the way, told about their bones? When does Rizpah, there goes my pen, when does Rizpah find out that she has to protect those bones? How does she know to do that? Put herself in sackcloth. How does she know to do that? Are they told that their bones cannot be taken by beasts or bird? Are they told about the bones of Saul and Jonathan? Are they, do they know that they're hanging and their bones will save Israel from famine? Do they know the principle of the just shall live by faith? How does somebody get to where the Gibeonites are? That's the question. Next week, we'll answer all those and a few more.